Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to be with you today. I appreciate very, very much the invitation extended to me to come and to speak with you concerning the matters regarding the Sermon on the Mount. I know that the lessons that you have heard already have been very good. I hope that only things that I can do can just add to some of the things that have already been stated, especially when the Sermon on the Mount applies to family and to work and to my subject today, which happens to be at school. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 7 and look at the last few verses of this chapter in verses 24 through verse 29. It is good to see many faces that I have not seen in quite some time. It's good to be with several of you. Some of you I have not been able to know and have not met before. Some of you know more my wife than you know more me, and that's good. It's, you don't have to know me. I'd rather you know her anyway. Some of you have had a lot to do with her raising. Uh, one in particular happens to be my mother-in-law. And I don't, I don't worry about y'all as much as I do her. My, your uh, preaching the truth is one thing, and I'm called and is responsible for doing that. But when it comes to my wife, she's the one I answer to, my mother-in-law. And so I appreciate her being here very, very much, and I appreciate all that you have done for my wife in the past and grateful for the chance to be here with you today. The thoughts that we're going to talk about this morning in regards to school, I wondered why I was given the subject because I'm not in school, but I do think there are some things that young people deal with that the Sermon on the Mount has a lot of answers to those things. If we had about an hour to an hour and a half, we could probably cover every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount and still not have really reached a lot of the things that young people have to deal with at school. For those of you that are parents who have children in college, these are some things that you need to help them understand and know. Those of you that, have, that are parents who have children who are in school, whether private or public, in this area, I hope that your children are very attentive to the things that we have to talk about this morning. Those of you that are grandparents who have grandchildren that may not be with us today, but you have a great influence upon their lives, Please make sure you use the things in the Sermon on the Mount to teach them, to admonish them the ways of what Jesus stresses on the mountain. There's a story that many children probably already know. The very first aspect of the Sermon on the Mount that they probably know is the verses that we're going to look at in verse 24, where it says, Everyone, therefore, that heareth these words of mine and doeth them shall be likened to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was not, for it was founded upon the rock. And everyone that heareth these words of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and smote upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall thereof. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. The first story that your children probably know about the Sermon on the Mount happens to be verse 24 to verse 27. And they sang that song and probably continued to sing that song for many, many years. They built that house. 
And when that house that was built upon the sand, they slapped their hands, and that house was destroyed. They built that house on a rock, and those rains came, and those winds blew, and that house stood. And they were sure glad to know that when their prayers went up, the blessings of God came down. And those of you that continue to teach those children those, that song, please do that. They need to know about that. But there's many times that when we speak about this message and we sing that song, there's a lot of times we forget to tell them about that's what their life's about. Their life is going to be built upon the sand. Or their life is going to be built upon the rock. Everybody's got a building. And when they build, either one of those foundations is where they place their house. At school, I wonder sometimes just how rough is it over there? Do you know what it's like to be at school at this day and time? Because when your children go to school, they're going to build a house at school as well as they do when they're home and when they go to work, when they go to college. Even when they're members of the body of Christ, they're going to be building that house. There's a lot of violence that goes on at school. There's immodesty. There's some bad language. There are some rebellious children, and there's also some lazy kids out there. There's a lot of indecency that your children are exposed to at school. They may vocalize that to you. They may not, but there are a lot of those things they face from that day. But there's one thing that they will face is a challenge, and there's a lot of things about a challenge that many of our young people don't mind facing. You get them playing a PlayStation game, they don't mind the challenge there. They don't mind playing a challenge in an Xbox game. Deal with them outside somewhere in a sport, some kind of game. They don't mind that challenge. They like that. They like the competition. They like to get involved in those kind of things. And in some cases, it doesn't matter to them whether they win or lose. They just want to compete. They like the challenge there. It's exciting to them. And in some cases, when you give a child a challenge, that's what makes them move. And we like children that move. It would be a sad state of affairs if our children didn't move. There are many times when it comes to school, one of the things that your children are faced with is a lifestyle that they're going to be challenged with. And the thing that they're going to face with when they come to school is they're going to try to acquire in some respects and accept and maintain the lifestyle that they're hearing and watching and they're witnessing. Rather than looking at the true pattern of what a lifestyle in the Sermon on the Mount is about. When you're exposed to so much in, at school, those are the things that those people do over there and the things that they hear over there are the things about that lifestyle that they seem to acquire rather than the lifestyle that Jesus has displayed here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And that's what I want to focus on this morning is a lifestyle that's found in the book of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But there's one thing I want you to think about. What your children are exposed to a lot of times at school and that lifestyle is some, in most cases, hypocritical. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along in the lesson. Because there's a lot of people, just like the Pharisees, who put on the front. And they can go through the motions. And they can give you a little bit of a lifestyle that seems so good, but in essence, they don't really live what they preach. They don't go by what they talk. 
One thing that I think is so important when it comes down to children at school and trying to live discernment, that there is hope among those people that do not have hope. There is no telling how many children that you go to school with, or your children go to school with, that they're dealing with divorced parents, abusive parents, parents who are worldly, who don't really care about them, and who don't have the time for them. And those children that your children go to school with, and that some of you go to school with, talk about sometimes how helpless they are. Or sometimes how hopeless they are. And how sometimes their life doesn't really have a lot of meaning, and there's some emptiness there that they're trying to find some kind of satisfaction. And a lot of times, based upon this hopelessness and this meaninglessness, and the idea that they're kind of empty, their actions speak to that very thing. They curse, they're immodest, they're indecent, they rebel, they're violent, they're lazy. They don't have a real focus on the train of thought. They lose things in processing information. They don't really gain a lot of things there. There's a lot of things going on in their life that tends to show you their life is meaningless and hopeless. And there's not really anybody that really cares about them, so they get a little cocky about the fact that they know which way they need to go. They don't get arrogant about what they need to do. And no one can tell them anything otherwise. So all they got to look forward to is a Friday night football game. Trying to see what they can do to conquer some girl. They're trying to do everything they can to make it through this class. They're going to win a championship somewhere along the way. They're trying to see what they can do to try and make the baseball team. and they're going to have a perfect attendance. And they're going to get a diploma. And then all through that, they'll understand that that's what happiness is all about. Conquering the girl, winning the football game, getting on the baseball team, doing this, doing that, and they're going to get the diploma and get through all through school, and they're going to think, this is what happiness is. I've made it. I've got through my 12 years of school, or 13 years of school, if you count kindergarten. But when you look in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot to be said about happiness. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, in verses 1 to verse 12, the idea of happiness is demonstrated for us from verse 3 all the way down to verse 12. The word blessed, the word happiness. I'm sure you've understood the definition of that word blessed very well in this last month. But I want you to notice the thing that sometimes we look at a lifestyle with all these people at school, and even some cases the people that we live with, and they think that's the kind of lifestyle that I want to have. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 12, this is a lifestyle that all of us need to acquire. This is where happiness is. Happiness is not what happens to you. Happiness is how you handle what happens to you. And these are the things that he talks about that every young person at school needs to understand. First of all, when you look at the book of Matthew, chapter 5, you begin in verse 3 all the way down, you will notice that it says in verse 3, in essence, it's not being at the, it is being at the end of your rope, not at the top of the ladder. The poor in spirit. Happiness is losing what means most, not having all that you want. In verse 4, happiness is being content with what you have, not always gaining more. 
Happiness is a good appetite for God. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Not satisfying your own lust. Happiness is genuine concern for others. Not looking out for number one. Happiness is a heart right with God. In verse 8. Pure in heart, not pleasing self. Happiness is being right with God and not everybody liking them. Sometimes that's the real hard challenge is verse 9 and verse 10 because there's so much at school where people need approval. People need acceptance. People need to be liked. People need to be wanted. People need to be found in a group. People need to be somewhere to be recognized as somebody. And so at school, this is where I'm going to be recognized because my mom and dad, they're split. They're here, they're there. And even if they're there together, they don't really concern themselves about me. They've got so many other things going on. So I'm going to, I've got to find out and reach out somewhere where I can find myself being liked. There's a lot of people that go to school that don't really have a mom and dad. They're just... Members of a foster home. When I was living in Bartlett, Tennessee, there were several boys at a boys' town there in Bartlett, Tennessee. Their moms and dads, who knows where they were. Some were in jail. Some were drying out. Some were in drug facilities trying to remedy their problems. And here at school, this is where they're going to find a connection. This is where they're going to find their happiness. And all through the Sermon Mount, you've got laid out in verses 3 through verse 12 the foundation of everything else that comes as a result of that. For example, let's look at something here. In verse 1 through verse 18 of the book of Matthew chapter 6, there's something I think is very important here. In verse 1 here it says, Take heed that you do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them, else you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. There are a lot of people at your school who are going to be considered to be impressionable, you included. And it's interesting how it is that the children that are impressionable, sometimes they're impressed more than they make an impression. What I want you to think about is not so much everybody impressing you or what they say, because there's a lot of people that you're going to look at and see and witness how it is that they're going to talk about the praise team they're a member of, or the youth group that they're a member of, and are somewhere they're going to meet at the pole in front of the school building and get you to think that there's somebody that they really aren't, religiously speaking. So instead of all these people out here that you go to school with making an impression on you, why don't you be the impressionist? Why don't you make the, the difference? Why don't you put a mark somewhere? Oh, yeah, I'm going to put a mark on it before I get through school. No, 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 not that. I'm talking about the impression that you can get from what you found in the Scriptures that you see in the Sermon on the Mount. Make the impression. Now, you can be the one that they do here. They, they pray. They give. They even, as what you see in verse 16 and 17, they fast. Now, if you fast and you give and you pray, don't make, make it be some formality that you're doing so impressing everybody. Doing it because, do it because you love God. Not because you want to meet at the pole like everybody else does. Not because you're some member of some youth group over here. Do it because you're wanting to be close to God. That's the impression that you want to make. In the Scripture, there was a man in the book of Second Chronicles chapter 34. 
that you, I want you to notice just briefly before we go to the next point. This man reigned in chapter 34, verse 1, eight years old, reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. Did that which was right in the eyes of Jehovah, in verse 2, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. The twelfth year began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places in the ashram and the graven images and the molten images. The guy's beginning to make an impression in him. He's, the, he's an impressible person at eight years old, 16, 20, but yet he's the one that's making the impression. And he's not doing it because he's just a king. He's doing it because he's found out, as you read a little bit later on, the book of the law that's read to him, verse 17, verse 18, he gets the understanding of what God wants, then what does he do? He says, okay, everybody, you do this. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. It. First thing he does in verse 30, he read in the ears all the words of the book of the covenant that were found in the house of Jehovah, and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before Jehovah to walk after his commandments and his statutes and his testimonies with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. He didn't say, everybody's got to do this, and you do it this way, this is how you do it. He says, I've got to do something, I've got to do it quick. Then, in verse 32, he calls all that were found in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. Folks, I want to tell you something. When you take the Sermon on the Mount and you apply it to school, then you need to make sure that you're the one that's going to be the impressionist. Yes, you're going to be impressionable, but be impressed by the words of God in the Sermon on the Mount so that you can be the impressionist. Commit it to yourself and then commit it to the life of other people so that hopefully they will stand to it. It's just like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, Be genuine in your faith. Be authentic. Be real. Be truthful. I think it's good for us to understand that when we go on a little bit further to the Sermon on the Mount, we look at something in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, verse 32, that has a lot to do with keeping yourself pure. Teachers, I think, a lot of times in school are very awestruck by the pattern of life of young people, and they're saying, I can't believe they're doing that. I just can't. Can you believe what they're doing? I can't believe young people would do this. But sometimes it's those teachers who are also having the same problem with divorce and adultery and immodesty and rebellion and indecency. The same thing that they're seeing in the children that they teach. The vulgarity in the students could be seen also in the vulgarity of the, of the teachers. Shame that that holds true in a lot of cases. But, you know, people at school talk a lot about teen pregnancy. And they talk about how it is that their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their ex-boyfriend or their ex-girlfriend has gotten themselves involved with somebody else in the point that now they're expecting the child. And that sometimes is hurt a lot more than who won the soccer game or who's the player of the week on the football team. They hear a lot about more of those things that's going on with the indecency of people more than do about what it takes to be a good English person or history. But here's the thing that I want you to look in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 27, verse 32. People say, 
At school, you're never going to find me doing that. I'm never going to find you. You're never going to find me pregnant like that. You're never going to hear me say that. And they're talking about how it is that they're not going to be doing the things that you see in verse 27. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm not going to be involved in adultery. But those same people that talk about those things that they're not going to do at school that pertains to trying to keep themselves pure on the outside, inwardly, they're just filling their minds up with the stuff. He says, I say unto you that everyone that looks on the woman that lusts after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And I think that's the lesson that we everybody needs to see. The message is, people can talk so bad about the teen pregnancy out here and all the adultery that exists and all the fornications going on, but the middle adultery and the middle fornication is that are the games that people at school are playing. On TV, on the Internet, in print, even in conversations, they're playing the game. It's one thing not to do it. It's another to give your mind all the things that it takes to do it. When you read it and you watch it. The Pharisees would be one of these people who would say, Oh, don't commit adultery. Well, make sure you remember that when you grow up. But they watch a DVD that's got all filtered through it. Young people at school need to understand something. I have not been used to PowerPoint in a long time, but I want to make sure that I get all this up here. I get, you know, I get, you get to preach and you forget all about this. You get hot on the collar, you forget about all this stuff right here. You just keep on going. So if I forget it, I may just blank it out and say, okay, here we go. If you think about what we're dealing with here in this situation, purity is one of these things that sometimes people still think it's just a girl thing. It's just a girl thing. Folks, I want to teach something. Purity is a boy thing. As much as it is a girl thing. People talk about how purity is just a, it's an antiquity thing. It's one of these, it's one of these antique, one of these long ago kind of things back in the old days. In the scripture, purity is natural. Impurity is not natural. Purity is natural. Because you remember the book of Romans chapter 1 and beginning of verse 24 down about verse 28, it talks about the homosexuals and the, and the lesbians there. And he talks about how it is that they took away themselves from the, from the natural use of the body. The natural thing is to be pure. The unnatural thing is to be impure. And so what you're dealing with in the book of Matthew chapter 5 is what you see in verse 29. If thy right eye cause thee to pluck, the stumble will pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it's profitable for thee, that one thy members should perish, not the whole body be cast into hell. If the right hand cause thee to stumble, cut it off, cast it from thee, for it's profitable for thee. And then one of thy members should perish, and not the whole body go to hell. You need to be the individual that says, oh yeah, I'm not going to do, I'm not committing adultery, and I'm not going to be finding myself in the bed with some boy I'm not supposed to be in with, but are you going to fill your mind with all the stuff that it takes to do it? Are you going to prepare yourself? You despise impurity? Maybe you ought to make sure you exercise self-respect and self-control. That's all that we're dealing with right here. We need to deal with the causes of teen pregnancy and indecency and adultery. More so than just saying, we're not going to do this. Which means there's going to be a bloody battle out there. And we're going to have to stop going to the movies. Stop dressing this way. Stop being those friends and make some other friends. Stop finding ourselves watching this TV program, maybe cutting off the cable. What? Cut off the cable? I can't cut off the cable. 
cut off these friends? You mean to tell those are the only friends I've cut? Those are the only friends that I have. I didn't tell you it was going to be easy. I told you it was going to be a bloody battle. But I will tell you this. There are some people that when you look at the New Testament and you read the Scriptures about all these things these people did, we're dealing with people in the New Testament who love God, who exemplified the Sermon on the Mount, that they were tortured and killed because they loved the Lord. And here we're whining about a movie and some TV show and some dress we've got to not wear. I remember a case where there was this girl one time who was asked by the football player, the quarterback of the football team, to go to a dance. She was asked by this guy to go to the dance. She turned him down. Oh, in school, you don't, don't turn down guys like that, do you? Guy's attractive, he's handsome. He's the guy that everybody wants to go to the game with, uh, go to the dance with. He knew the kind of character she was. He asked her, said, you don't smoke? You don't drink? You don't do these things that all the rest of us are doing? He says, what do you do for fun? What do you do? Out of the mouths of babes, she says, I'm... Go to bed and get up the next morning not having to regret what I did the day before. That's what fun is. That's what fun is. That's what we're dealing with in the book of Matthew 5. It's happiness. And so what I'm here to tell you is there's a lot of people whose lives are broken and torn apart because of impurity. Don't find yourself selling your purity for one minute. Another thing that we want to look at in language there's a lot of things we can study about in the book of Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 26, and also Matthew chapter 5, 33 and 37. And even chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 6, has a lot to do with our language. Now, hopefully we can point out these things as we go along. There's a lot of people in your school that will say, we don't need to be killing anybody. We've got a lot of violence going in school, and there's shootings going on all the time. But they won't hesitate to tell you how much they hate somebody. And I'm not, how much they hold a grudge against somebody for what they've done. This boyfriend, this girlfriend, this boy on this team, and this girl on this team. They hate them. And they even talk about the teachers they hate. And they tell everybody else, oh, I just hate them. And they hold the grudges against them. You see, what we're dealing with is the same thing at school as people deal with back in the New Testament. They say, don't kill, but we don't deal with the influences and the impulses that lead to the problem. They hold the grudges. They call the names. Just like it says up here in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 22, they call the people the names. They do everything that leads to it, but they won't actually go through with it. They'll call them the fool. They'll talk to them about how worthless they are. But do we know that we're just only one step away from blowing their brains out? Sticking a knife in their back. Beating them up. I think sometimes we need to see at school what happens when people get angry at school. These are the violence that we have at school. What happens at school when people get upset and violent is the same thing that happens when adults get upset and violent. So we've got to stop the words. Stop calling the names. Avoid the bitterness that leads up to this. Whether it's your boyfriend, I should say ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, 
or the teacher or somebody you play on the soccer team with. I want you to think something else about this. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to verse 37, there's a lot of swearing going on at school. And by that, by that I mean there are a lot of children out there at school who are promising you a lot. And they're promising the teachers a lot. But the thing is, can people make the promises that they state? There's a lot of them that can't. And a lot of them have no intention of keeping a promise. They'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to follow through with this. But they're not at all truthful in their conversation and the promises that they make. And that doesn't just stop at high school. That goes on into college. There's a lot of college students that I know that can't keep a promise. And they have no intention of keeping a promise. They think they're going to be able to, but there's something else comes along and they can't keep it. And the next thing you know, everybody's coming back. Here's the thing. Everybody's coming back and saying, we well, just can't trust young people today. Why is it? You tell me why it is. It's because they say something and they can't keep what they say. And then here comes the adults and say what they say, and all the children say, well, why are they saying that like that? Well, it's because you can't keep your promise. But Matthew chapter 5 clears all that up and says in verse 37, let your speech be yea, yea, nay, nay, and whatsoever is more than these, and we'll talk about that tonight, is of the evil one. But let's talk about Matthew chapter 7, just a minute, and talk about language. Blaming, there's a lot of blaming going on at school. And the thing about it is, all this blaming that goes on at school, there's a lot of young people out here that think they're the victims. And so therefore, since they're the victims, they're saying, well, the teacher's always against me. They're always against me. If my coach wouldn't make these crazy rules, then I wouldn't have this problem. My friends put me on this guilt trip. My parents don't like me. And on and on and on and on. All these accusations, all these condemnations, all these judgments, all, these blame, all this blaming goes on. Let me, let me just put a little situation here to you all. Young folks, let me say, if you make an A on your report card, you make 100 on a test, who are you going to say is the one responsible for that? Me. You're going to be the one that accepts responsibility for that A. If you make a D, who's going to be responsible for that D? Oh, the teacher. The teacher doesn't like me. That's why I made a D. So, if you make a mistake, be the one that faces up to the mistake. When you sin, be the one that understands Ezekiel chapter 18, when you mention the verse 19 and verse 20, that it's not going to be your parents that are going to be responsible for the sin that you commit, it's going to be you. So make sure you're the one that's not vocalizing ever to everybody how much everybody's against you. And if it weren't for this, this wouldn't happen. If they didn't say this, then I wouldn't say that. Think about that. But let's talk about something that you own. Let's talk about Matthew chapter 6 just a little bit, verse 19, verse 34. And let's talk about how it is that you think about the things that you own. Like your Xbox. And like your computer, like your car. Let's talk about the new clothes that you just bought. Let me ask you a very simple question here. How long do you expect your latest purchase to last? How many of those things that you just purchased will be your favorite six months from now? How long do you think all those things are going to last? How long are all those things going to make you feel happy, we would say? 
Well, I'll say this. Some of the things that you buy that you think are going to last a long time, those are the things that you worry about a lot. And as a result of worrying about that, you want to guard it, you want to protect it, you want to launch it, you want to hold it, you want to do everything you can to make sure because you know that thing's going to last you a long, long time. Or at least that's what you think it's going to do for you. If you are at school and you're a Christian and you're in Christ and you worry about all those things that you think are going to last, I'm going to tell you one thing. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, they're going to get in your way. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. And you're worried about whether or not you're going to pass the exam. You're worried about getting fat. You're worried about whether or not somebody's going to ask you the homecoming. You're worried about your friends. You're worried about all these things that pertains to your car, if you're going to get a scratch on it, somebody's going to bump into you. You're worried about what kind of clothes you're going to wear. You're going to worry about the pimples on your face. You're going to worry about the things that you wear. You're going to worry about whether you smell right or not. You're going to worry about all those things. But I'll tell you, they're going to get in your life. When you emphasize all those things above what he says in verse 19, lay not up yourselves treasures upon the earth, for where moth and rust, con- where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break through and steal. Those things that you purchase that you think you're worried about that are going to last you a long time, he says, I'm telling you something, they're not. Because when you get old, you can't see, you can't hear, you've got to take your teeth out and clean them. The only thing you're going to have left is God. And so that's why Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1 says, Remember now that Creator in the days of thy youth. If you were to sit down and read Matthew chapter 26, verse 25 to verse 34, there are at least five questions that I think are all answered in this. Number one, what is really important? School is. But what's really important is what God is going to do with you and through you in school. Number two, how much control do you have over your skin, your hair, or your or your height. How are others doing in worse circumstances? You know these little birds? There's some birds that you haven't seen in a while. And you won't see them until next spring. And you're not worried about them. And they're not worried about it either. They'll be back. Those flowers that just were just bitten by the frost a few days ago, frozen to death, they're not worried. They're going to come back. We shouldn't worry about it either. Question number four. Isn't it best to live in day-to-day compartments? We're already worried about if someone's going to invite me to the homecoming next year. And the fact that i got a CD stuck in my CD player in my SUV. Number five. Isn't God big enough to handle the toughest situations? My son... I had a poster in his bedroom with two basketball players reaching up to the goal, their hands are above the rim trying to get the basketball. And on that poster it says, give your best and let God do the rest. And he took that to heart. Because when he started playing soccer for Bolton High School down in Memphis, Tennessee, he had two soccer shoes. And on one he wrote Colossians 3, 17. And on the other, he wrote Philippians 4, 13. Whatsoever you do in word of deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3, 17. 
Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthened me. It wasn't about Him. It was all about God. You're trying to survive a teacher's class. You're trying to win a championship. You get a diploma. You're trying to last your freshman year. You're trying to get through the eighth grade with the toughest math teacher on the face of the earth. You get through all of that. What are you going to have? Verse 33. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's what you're going to have. That's all you're going to have left. And finally, and I appreciate your time, is Matthew chapter 5, 7, verses 15 to verse 29, on the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you that are young today, they're at school, I want you to ask yourself, what is your greatest achievement so far in school? Surviving Miss Abelberry's history class? Surviving English? Trying to graduate, make the baseball team, have a perfect attendance, see what you can do to be the top 10% of the class? Is that what your greatest achievement is going to be? Here's your greatest achievement. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to verse 14. Choosing the right gate. There are two gates. One that's the wide, one that's the narrow. There's your greatest achievement, choosing the right one. And everybody gets to the fork in the road and they don't know which one to pick. Your greatest achievement is going to be found in Matthew chapter 5, 7, verse 15 to verse 23. Whether or not you're going to make your Christianity fake where it's just like you're covered with sheep's clothing, but inwardly raven in wolves, in verse 15, or it's going to be genuine, it's going to be real. You're not going to be one that says, Lord, Lord, I go to church, I go to service, I go to all the meetings, but I'm going to be the one that's doing the will of the Father that's in heaven. Your greatest achievement is going to be whether or not you're going to have a faith of your own. Not the one that you're going to pull out of the trunk like the spare tire when you need it, and when you're desperate, not gonna, it's not going to be one that you're going to ask your parents, well, what do, I think, what do you think I'm going to do? do I, should, should I do this? Should I go there? Should I pick this one? Not the one that's based upon what the preacher believes. Based upon what you know and understand. And the authorities of the words of Jesus. That's Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28 and verse 29. But I will say this. When you get that faith of your own, do not, do not, let it go. No matter how much people pressure you, do not let it go. Please don't let it go. The people of Israel, let it go. In Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, they saw the consequences of that. We were told the consequences of that. And if you let your faith go, you're going to see the consequences of it too. Your greatest achievement is going to be understanding that if you don't build your house on the rock. It says these are some of the greatest powerful words in this whole text. The man that built his house upon the sand, in verse 27, it fell, and great was the fall thereof. Great. Great was the fall. Do not, please, do not get in your mind this mentality that whatever has happened to my best friend, whatever has happened to my boyfriend, whatever has happened to other friends that I've got in school will not happen to me. If it fell for them, it will fall for you. So build your house upon the rock. Make the right choice. Make the choice to be God. 
get serious about the kingdom. And by that I don't mean just be baptized in water. Be a Christian that not only knows the Sermon on the Mount, but lives the Sermon on the Mount. Change your life where necessary. Be what you need to be. Do what's right. Well, together we sing this song.